Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I mean, McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles, the man that you can't ignore. Uh, as has been obvious on social media over the last 36 to 48 hours uh, with regards to certain comments uh, on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and uh, and others, amongst others. Uh, Packed uh, pod for you to today. Uh, Big news, obviously. Uh, I would say it's the worst-kept secret in football, but it wasn't even a worst-kept secret. It was wasn't a secret at all, and that is that uh, Steve Bruce has been sacked as manager of Newcastle United. It's a subject we've been covering now for obviously several weeks, as well as the takeover by the Saudi consortium uh, for the last two years. Duncan, you've got some uh, interesting information regarding the process of what's been going on, and obviously we'll talk about candidates as well. But uh, just talk us through the mechanics of uh, what's happened today and also uh, what you expect to happen possibly in the next few weeks. Yeah, we discussed this in last week's podcast when we went into the takeover in some detail. What what I'm being told about this process is it's very detailed. It's very analytical. Um, This consortium, uh, Saudi uh, investment, public investment fund led consortium very conscious that they want to get this managerial appointment right um, and are using kind of an unusual process in that uh, PCP Capital have a management contract to run the club. Um, that's Amanda Stavely's company. They are the people on the ground. Uh, they are being asked to put recommendations in as to changes, um, as to candidates to to be the next manager their proposal then goes to PIF and PIF and analyze it and decide whether they're going to sign off on it and uh, there is also the possibility that PIF will come up with their own candidates um, and uh, go back to PCP and say this is this is the way to go but the, the, the line that's being emphasized to me is that we do not want to rush this decision in an ideal world, we will only have one manager. We'll make one managerial appointment. He will keep us in the division. And that's another factor that's being emphasized. They now feel that this is really priority number one, stay in the Premier League this season. Next season, um, aim for European qualification. Um, ideally, the manager that they appoint this season will be someone who can keep them in the Premier League and then build to uh, European qualification and then build. Um, and at the time frame they're, they're looking at is a five-year, basically a five-year plan to be competitive for the Premier League title, to be competitive in the Champions League. Um, as we said last week, if they feel they need to split that appointment, i.e. they bring someone in who is a, a specialist in keeping the club in the division um, with the idea that there would be a break point in his contract, in the summer and they then uh, appoint the long-term manager then they're prepared to do that 
Um, they held off on sacking Steve Bruce last week because they did not have a decision on who the next manager should be. I think the experience of the game at the weekend, the response to that game has uh, got them to a point where they said, right, we remove Steve Bruce. We have a deputy, an assistant coach in Graham Jones who can take over training, uh, who can take over the team if need be. Uh, explanation I had today was that it's not impossible that Graham Jones stays in charge for the entire season should um, the, the process of finding the manager take longer than they expect um, and should he do well uh, in charge of the team. Um, he's quite experienced. He's uh, been an assistant to a number of coaches, spent a lot of time with Roberto Martinez, Swansea, Wigan, Everton in Belgium then left Belgium to be Darren Moore's assistant at West Bromwich Albion um, successfully uh, in uh, in the initial stage, then took on the Luton Town manager's job, his only managerial position in his own right, left that during the, the COVID suspension of the season with Luton really struggling, 23rd in the championship, moved to Bournemouth last season and then moved to Newcastle in January last year. So he's not really a Steve Bruce appointment, not really a, a, a central um, component of Bruce's management. There's a, there's a degree of separation between him. He was also used by Gareth Southgate as part as one of many coaches that Southgate brought in to help um, organise and, and run um, the England national team at the Euros. Um, that's not to say he will run through the season. The, the, the brief I'm, I was getting today is very much this is an open process. Attention to detail is important. Getting the right man is important. We don't want to rush it just for the sake of, of, uh, of change. We told you last week that we're trying to negotiate a compromise on Steve Bruce's um, payoff. We explained that uh, Mike Ashley gave a kind of poison pill uh, managerial contract to Bruce and that he was paid a low amount per season, but was due a payoff of in the region of £8 million if he was dismissed and that and the contract he had was one in which that it rolled over um, automatically. So whoever took over from, from, the, from uh, Mike Ashley as owner would have to pay Bruce off if they decided uh, they weren't he wasn't the right man for the job. Obviously, PIF, PCP and the Rubin brothers had already made that decision. As we said, they tried to negotiate that, that uh, uh, compensa compensation package down. My guidance is that Bruce was paid in full today. So he held on and got the, the, the full compensation element. So that's, uh, I guess you could say, one failure on uh, on PCP and PIS part and that they didn't manage to save money in dismissing Bruce. But you could also argue that um, they were prepared to sp spend money when it was necessary in order to move Bruce out uh, because he didn't really, uh, the, the feeling was he didn't particularly want to be there anymore. Um, I see he's given an interview today where he's talked about the, the pressures of the job and the criticism of him, uh, the effect it had on his family and even discussed the idea that this might be his last job in, in management. So I think you get a sense from that, from from where Bruce was and, and why he needed to be changed. Um, number of people have been mentioned as candidates to replace Bear in mind that you have this complex process of PCP recommending people and PIF 
doing their assessment with with no experience really of football. This is the first time they've owned a football club. Um, they're very focused on investment results, on on not wasting money in this process of not making the kind of mistakes that Manchester City, um, in particular, made when they came into English football with a, with a large amount of money. One of the candidates is definitely Paulo Fonseca. Um, Fonseca talking to friends last night said there had been contact with um, Newcastle United. He was interested in the job and it was a possibility. Um, it's interesting that they are looking at Fonseca as one candidate. It certainly fits the profile of wanting to play attacking football, being an aggressive front foot coach, um, a lot of experience in other divisions, success in uh, at, at Champions League level in terms of good performances and results with uh, Shakhtar Donetsk, but obviously no experience of the Premier League. Also recommend going back to the podcast we did about Tottenham's manager hunt in the summer, uh, made a complete mess of, uh, of his interview with Tottenham Hotspur uh, at a point where they'd actually agreed to give him the job. A contract was agreed in principle. And uh, as we explained in the podcast, uh, uh, a further conversation in which he went through the detail of, of his plans with uh, Daniel Levy and, and uh, Fabio Paratici uh, resulted in that offer being withdrawn. Now Fonseca has actually talked about that in, a, in an interview since he's given a, a slightly different version of, of why the offer was withdrawn. Um, his version is that he wanted to play attacking football and Paratici didn't want attacking football and and uh, and the offer was removed on that basis. But there are some question marks around Fonseca and no experience of the Premier League. Um, one of the things that's, that, again, is being emphasised to me by the people in charge of Newcastle is they want to stay in the division. They want to avoid relegation and, uh, and they want people who do have Premier League experience. So there's a, there's a, there's obviously a disconnect there, which I think might be related to, to the kind of convoluted fashion in which they're going about making this very important decision about first managerial appointment at Newcastle United under the, the Saudi led consortium. One name which I find very interesting, Duncan, that's been mentioned to me, um, not that there's been an approach made as far as I'm aware of, but certainly an interest from one of the parties is Xavi Hernandez, the former Barcelona captain, who um, has been widely touted as a successor to Ronald Koeman, who is uh, not popular with Barcelona fans. Uh, and obviously the team's performances so far this season uh, have not been brilliant. Um, however, it has been relayed to me from someone very close to her, Chavi, that uh, he's not keen to follow Koeman directly into the job at Camp Nou. Uh, he sees the problems both financially and with regards to the playing squad as uh, certainly um, not insurmountable, but certainly uh, problematic. And as a very much a club legend, it has to be said, and Barcelona uh, through and through, uh, he does not want to put himself in the position of taking that job under the circumstances 
in which the club now find themselves. Uh, obviously, he's been coaching in the Middle East and uh, is learning his trade, but that is at a low level in terms of the quality of football compared to uh, what he would be expected to provide in European competition. And that Newcastle United could well be a good staging post for him with regards to increasing his experience in a much superior league uh, and also uh, being a challenge with regards to uh, taking a very big club on uh, with all the history and tradition and the supporter base, um, which is, okay, not as big as Barcelona, but certainly is one of the larger um, ones in English football. And uh, that it would help his career pathway, uh, giving him experience um, before moving on to uh, managing his boyhood club in Barcelona. Could you see that being a, an option for uh, for Newcastle United? I think that was a very high risk option. Um, it, it doesn't surprise me that the a proposal has been made to Xavi. Um, we discussed last week that agents um, have seen this apparent huge um, uh, flood of cash coming into to football via uh, the, the Saudi Arabia. Um, sovereign wealth fund and have been proposing ideas and, and contacting players and saying Newcastle United are interested in signing you would you be interested in coming um, when Newcastle United themselves have been very careful about not giving mandates to agents um, to sign players at this stage the, the way it's been explained to me is that they will be very cautious in the January window they want to focus the recruitment on the summer window and they don't see themselves going for major names at, at this stage. Um, they want they, they realize there's a building process to get to where they want to be. They're extremely ambitious about where they want to be. They believe they can um, be like Manchester City, but uh, but do it more efficiently. They believe they have the resource to do that. And if, if they organize themselves in the right way, they can get there um, in um, a five-year period. Uh, if you are very conscious about getting the managerial appointment right, then you would have to have a lot of faith that Xavi, um, for all he was a phenomenal footballer, one of the, the greatest footballers of his generation, and he talks a, a, a very impressive game um, about the way he wants football to be played, that actually he can implement rapidly in a very different division, one he's never obviously experienced himself. Um, coming from uh, Qatari football, where he was in his first season handed the, the Qatari champions and the strongest squad in the division and, and lost the title. So those people who have worked um, in that league and seen the way he operated there weren't particularly impressed with the way he started. Now, learning process, obviously. But if you are... PIF and you have the resource available to you that you have and, and there's no question there's there's a very large amount of money that can be put into finding the right manager do you want to gamble on someone who has um, 
absolutely no experience of coaching at, at the top level of European football. They've also been handed some interesting new problems in, in the past week and unexpected problems, I can I can tell you that. Um, the, in that the Premier League held a meeting this week in which they brought in a temporary rule um, to prevent related party sponsorships in direct response to the Saudi purchase of Newcastle United, which a large number of clubs were opposed to for various reasons. Um, I think principally uh, selfish reasons or reasons of self-interest. And uh, they have moved um, in a vote, which 18 of the, the Premier League clubs voted in favour of, that, uh, that related party transactions should be uh, managed and prevented from exceeding fair commercial value. And this um, one has been brought in rapidly because uh, they don't want Newcastle United to put some sponsorship deals in place before a permanent change to the Premier League rules are implemented. And two, because they've been working on this for some time, basically in response to Manchester City and Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi's funding in Manchester City. Um, Premier League and, and Manchester City in a long legal dispute um, over whether Manchester City have broken multiple Premier League rules in the past, one that, that remains unresolved after a, a couple of years working through the process. Um, and the idea is you can stop a lot of the problems with nation state ownership of football clubs by saying, we are going to assess all sponsorship contracts to see if they are of fair economic value uh, and to see if if you are um, putting basically artificially pump priming your your resources um, beyond what would, would be um, competitively achievable in the market. Uh, Newcastle United's new owners were not expecting this. They got caught by surprise by this. Um, it, there is a feeling amongst them that this will not be the end of um, obstructions placed in their path by other Premier League clubs. They're very conscious there is a lot of opposition to their membership of the division. Um, they talk about whether this is uh, going to be legally defensible. And in fact, they made the decision to send um, Lee Charnley, uh, the, basically the interim chief executive, Mike Ashley's chief executive, who will be replaced to this Premier League meeting uh, instead of uh, a representative, a direct representative of PCP Capital. And uh, having had uh, been warned over the weekend that something like that, this challenge was, was likely to be in place, um, they uh, armed Charnley with a letter which essentially threatened legal action against each Premier League club and the, the division um, should they implement these laws. Uh, I don't think it had the effect they expected. It seems to have aggravated uh, a number of the clubs and uh, made them more resolute in putting this uh, temporary enforcement in place. And I, I think it is a, it's an important one, which if the Premier League clubs manage to um, construct in a fashion that actually does limit Saudi Arabia's ability to put money into the club and also um, Abu Dhabi's uh, ability to put um, additional monies into Manchester City um, and any other um, nation state or uh, big commercial organization that chooses to 
um, buy a, a Premier League club in the future. I think it does change uh, the picture of of what clubs are able to do or what new owners are able to do. And it's certainly something that was not factored into PIF and PCB's thinking um, specifically when they purchased the club and when they, they drew up their initial plans for, well, we've talked here about the five-year plan where they um, think if they get things right, they can be up alongside Manchester City challenging for the Premier League title. Interesting, Duncan, that Manchester City abstained from the vote on the basis of the threat of legal action uh, rather than actually vote against um, in the way that Newcastle United did. Uh, I don't I don't think it's a surprise Manchester City did not vote in favour of it. Um, I think it's pretty obvious what Manchester City's stance on, on this kind of matter is. Um, and remember, they are embroiled in a, a big legal dispute with the Premier League at present. Um, we, I think we talked about it in a previous podcast and the kind of delaying tactics they've used, very similar to the tactics they used when UEFA found them guilty of breaching fundamental Champions League rules and basically questioning every element of the rulebook and questioning they questioned UEFA's authority to, to make a judgment and they've questioned the Premier League's authority to make a judgment on their case. So it, I think I think Manchester City's fundamental position on this stuff is uh, is, is pretty obvious that uh, rules targeted against related party sponsorships are going to be problematic for them. One thing I would question, Duncan, is, um, and this is specific to Newcastle United, in the sense that um, Mike Ashley's main business interest, Sports Direct, had a huge sponsorship deal with Newcastle United um, in terms of stadium sponsorship uh, and advertising, etc. So why is it different that <laughs> Saudi Arabia are not allowed to sponsor uh, or indeed uh, put money into Newcastle United as part of their ownership when Mike Ashley never received any questions about his. Why is it different? Because they're introducing a rule to prevent uh, unfair related party sponsorship from happening. Mike Ashley's sponsorship of Newcastle United was never one uh, in which uh, there w was an issue with them becoming competitive beyond their uh, their, their proper economic level, their ability to generate cash. In fact, one of the, the reasons Newcastle United are, are have been attractive to PIF and to PCP is that Mike Ashley was very ineffective at, at taking um, commercial advantage of Newcastle United status. A, a number of people looked at the books and, and the books are, are good in the sense that the club was not making a loss. Ashley had, had devised a way of of running Newcastle United at relatively minimal cost um, with minimal losses um, and keeping them in divisions. So keeping earning the, the big Premier League uh, broadcast contracts with the idea that he would sell for what turned out to be £305 million down the line. He wasn't interested in, in competing for titles. Um, and, and it should be emphasised that these rules are not going to say you cannot have 
a related party sponsorship contract. You, so they're not going to say Newcastle United cannot have a Saudi Arabian sponsor or a, uh, a PIF um, company sponsoring the club. What they will say is they cannot go beyond fair value. So there'll be an assessment made as to what, for example, Newcastle United shirt sponsorship is worth. And, and if they try and uh, sign a deal with a related party company that gives Newcastle United the same sponsorship value as Manchester United, for example, then the Premier League will say, no, that's ridiculous. You do not have that commercial value yet. Um, therefore, that sponsorship contract for in terms of what you can add to your revenues for calculating the Premier League version of financial fair play is limited to fair value, not not the uh, the figure that Saudi Arabia um, want to place upon it. Okay, so playing devil's advocate on this one, um, the saying goes that you know the cost of anything is only what someone's willing to pay for it. So if someone's willing to pay way over the odds for shirt sponsorship or any kind of sponsorship deal at Newcastle United, then what's different from that about someone saying that a house worth £100,000 in the current market gets sold for £300,000? If, if someone's who is not a related party is willing to pay five times the, the market value um, for sponsorship of, of Newcastle United shirt, no problem whatsoever. If someone who's a related party, then you can have an assessment as to what is realistic value for a short sponsorship for a Premier League team of that status. What is realistic value for a short sponsorship for a, a, a European club in a top division of that status? That you know, you, you, there's plenty of benchmarks out there to compare against, uh, and there's you know there's a credible way of assessing fair market value, which is something UEFA has done for a number of, of years now and something which as the UEFA's investigation and uh, an ultimate um, sanction of Manchester City banning them for, for two um, seasons in the Champions League um, demonstrated that uh, Manchester City had gone to pretty significant measures to, uh, to find their way around and they, they managed to get that turned over by the Court of Arbitration for Sport in a majority verdict. Um, so they got the suspension turned over, but they were still found guilty by the Court of Arbitration of Sport of, um, of failing to comply with, uh, with Champions League regulations and, and still um, met a, a very large fine. And there is, you know, there is certainly an issue amongst the people who were involved in that case over um, how that majority verdict uh, came about. So basically what we're saying is that this is uh, an issue which um, is troubling and indeed uh, antagonising other clubs who don't have the resource wealth of nation-state-owned clubs uh, by saying that this is against the competitive nature of the game. Exactly. And, and, and I think one of the important things here isn't simply that the Premier League clubs voted to put this rule in place um, this week in the first meeting, uh, first opportunity they had 
post the takeover being approved, I think one of the important things is it, it emphasizes the degree of opposition to this takeover amongst Premier League clubs. Premier League decided to grant it, um, but the way in which they decided to grant it, the way in which they informed the other Premier League clubs about it has not gone down well. I mean, you've even seen in the past week, Jurgen Klopp um, being asked about the takeover and, uh, and calling on uh, the, the chief executive of, of the Premier League, Richard Masters, to make an official statement to, to give a press conference to explain the decision. Klopp was, was very direct about it. He said, this is like creating a super team, if you like. He talked about the, the Super League issues and the, and the controversy over that, and he compared the, the issues with Super League to Newcastle United creating a super team. He said it's pretty much the same guaranteed spots in the Champions League in a few years' time, not immediately. With how financial fair play is used nowadays, where nobody knows exactly whether it is still existing or not, Newcastle fans will love it, of course, but for the rest of it, it just means there is a new superpower in Newcastle. I can't avoid that. Money cannot buy everything. It will take time, but over time, they have enough money to make a few wrong decisions, to make then the right decisions, and then they will be where they want to be. So he is saying, you allow these nation states to buy football clubs and what they buy is guaranteed entry to the Champions League and a guaranteed place at the, the top end of the Premier League table even if the mistakes make mistakes in the process it's inevitable if you have that amount of financial firepower you will get up to the top of the division and it's a problem for um, for competitive balance in the Premier League it's a problem for competitive balance in European football in general but Rich, coming from Jurgen Klopp, who spent more than £80 million on the centre-half, um, as well as the rest of his squad, um, because not every Premier League club can do that either. Yeah. But I suppose it's a, it's a case of, you know, relative value. It's, well, the, as you said last week, Ian, um, not so much of this is about morality and ethics, not so much is about objecting to the, the very important human rights issues involved um, when nation states who want to sports wash their image are, are, are buying football clubs. It's the, the thing that really seems to arc other uh, Premier League figures is the, the, the increased level of competition. But we have to, we should praise um, the, the Saudi owners um, of of Newcastle United in, in one sense in that the uh, the lead figure in PIF, uh, Yasser Al-Rumayan, um, who is now non-executive chairman of Newcastle United, attended St. James Park, uh, was obviously caught on camera a number of times sitting as he was beside um, Amanda Staveley. And uh, he now has attended as many home games um, in one week as Manchester City's titular owner Sheikh Mansour has managed to attend in 13 years of his uh, ownership of Manchester City. Yeah, indeed. I'm sure he snuck out of school as a boy, though, to watch City play. I, if, if, you believe, <laughs> if you believe the briefs, he watches every, he loves football and he watches every single Manchester City game from wherever he is in the world. He's just too busy to have attended any more than one match and, and now getting on for a decade and a half. 
Listeners will remember that we reported on uh, some discontent and indeed concern about uh, the form of Manchester United in the last two weeks on the podcast at the highest level. And by that, I mean the Glazers as well as the administrators at the club. Um, that has increased as a result of the defeat to Leicester City and indeed the manner of the defeat to Leicester City last weekend. Um, they've now lost four of their last seven matches and uh, face a game uh, this week in the Champions against Atalanta, uh, as well as a very important, possibly the most important match of Solskjaer's Manchester United tenure against Liverpool at home this coming weekend. Uh, Duncan, Solskjaer himself has admitted that the form has been very poor. Obviously, he's defensive about it uh, because he is of part of the problem, as it were. Um, but I think more worrying for the manager, um, and I think also something which has been expressed by many fans of Manchester United is uh, the fact that the players themselves seem unconvinced of the way the team are set up, uh, both tactically and in formation, and the way that uh, they're being asked to play. Uh, and that is coming through in both their performances, demeanour and body language on the pitch. Yeah. Um eight wins in the last 20 matches for, for Solskjaer's Manchester United, just one clean sheet in the last 19 matches, despite the huge spend on the defence under under Solskjaer. And one of the elements of um, what was a, probably the worst performance of the season, um, that's quite a hard judgment to make because most of the performances have been poor this season. There's only been one convincing um victory one convincing uh, game and that was the one against Leeds United at the, at the very start um, but one of the factors in that Leicester City game was Solskjaer rushing Harry Maguire back after one training session to put him in the centre of his defence and Harry Maguire um, making mistakes all four of Leicester's goals most importantly I think in the in the, the first goal where the ball was rolled out to him. He didn't run towards yeah. it, allowed himself to there be was caught much ru- There wasn't much rushing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look, people have said you uh, should give him credit because he wasn't fully fit and he wasn't prepared for the game. We've seen Maguire make these kind of mistakes in the past. It's um, Maguire in that position on the left side, splitting uh, uh, the defence to, to collect balls from... De Gea or Henderson, whoever's in goals, there has been issues with either him not picking that ball up or the way he returns the, the ball into the centre on multiple occasions. Um, that was a factor. Um, Solskjaer briefed afterwards that he did not have faith in Eric Bailly, who was expecting to play that game because Varane um, also injured going into the match and, and decided to go with Maguire instead. He said publicly that he was responsible for the decision. It was his his mistake. As you said, um, he talked about their poor form. He talked, um, I think one of the interesting things he said after the game was that that he, he said they'd been looking 
at what was wrong with the team over the international break. Said we have a, had a good time to see what's gone wrong lately because one result in isolation, that can be, say, luck margins. But when we've got too many games now where we've lost points, so we, we need to look at the whole setup of the team, the whole balance of the team. Maybe something has to give. So, he, so apparently he spent a lot of time in the international break looking at what was going wrong and then decided to put the lineup and the tactics out that he did against Leicester City and, and delivered, as I say, probably the worst performance of the season. So I think that's pretty telling on, on Solskjaer is that he, he knows there's a problem and he can't fix the problem. Uh, in fact, probably makes the, the problem worse. You, you say that there's discontent amongst the players. There's been discontent amongst certain players for a long time. Um, it's not hard to, to find people in that camp who will tell you that the training is poor, um, that the, the, the standard of um, organisation pre-match and during games is not what they would expect for an elite club. Uh, I can tell you that there has been um, times when there's been direct dissent in the dressing room uh, towards Solskjaer this season. And uh, as we've said, from the completion of the transfer window, Solskjaer was handed a huge opportunity in that Manchester United basically outdid everyone in the market in terms of investment by signing Varane from Real Madrid. Um, by signing Jadon Sancho, someone he'd wanted for over a year, and by signing Cristiano Ronaldo. But it, it is a double-edged sword in that the expectation level has gone up from everyone, it seems, apart from uh, his former teammates uh, in the media. Um, we had Gary Neville on Monday night trying to argue that uh, it, this would be a successful season if Manchester United managed to win the Europa League. Um, and failed to win the Premier League and, and managed to get Champions League qualification, that would be a sign that the, the team was still developing, which, which is quite remarkable given the, the Champions League group they're in and the, the, that they will only get into the Europa League if they fail to qualify from a group that most people would expect them to go through from comfortably when it was drawn. Um, and yes, uh, I think as you reported a couple of weeks ago, the Glazers see that they put a lot of money into the squad under pressure from the supporters. We had the, the last game against Liverpool. They play Liverpool this weekend. The last game against Liverpool being called off because of supporter protests against them. And they expect a return and they're not getting a return at present. The team is worse. The team is less effective than it was last season. And last season wasn't that great either. So he needs a turnaround in results. Um, he's got it every time in the past. Um, every time he's been under this degree of pressure, the, they've managed to get results against significant opponents. You could see that happening again. What I find hard to see happening is the fundamentals of the way in which the club is being run from a coaching perspective changing. Um, again, the Leicester City game, set-piece goals conceded on more than one occasion throughout Solskjaer's period at the club. It's just one example of, of where he's been lacking. They have been weak at set pieces. They hired a set piece coach this season. Interestingly, I'm told that wasn't Solskjaer's own appointment. That was something that the club put in, uh, something where the club interviewed uh, the, uh, the candidate they decided to appoint, Eric Ramsey, who they took from Chelsea. But uh, changes have been made 
to personnel to try and change these basic matters of, of coaching and they're not happening and, and it's hard to see them ever happening. You can see the team getting better results out of just from the sheer quality of the players. Can you see Solskjaer com- evolving and changing and developing into a manager on the same level as, uh, as Tuchel, as Jurgen Klopp, as Pep Guardiola, as other um, leading coaches in Europe. I don't, I don't think that happens with someone who's already been a manager for 10 years. Very true. Um, I thought it was interesting as well, Duncan, in uh, Solskjaer's comments that he said he's got the best coaching staff and he can ask for any more. An absolutely and, amazing coaching staff was the words he used. Yeah. Now, that's odd given the results for him to say that. It's almost like he's kind of reverse um, reproaching them as if they're not doing their job properly and it's not about him. Because if they're so good, then why are Manchester United losing football matches? I, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. I think if you look at the whole quote, what he said after talking about them being absolutely amazing he said their attention to detail the sessions they put on their preparation that we have there I don't think that I can ask for a better staff they're good people good man united people and with one intention in mind and that is to improve the team and to help the players help the team grow I don't think it's a reverse criticism of them I just think it's a man under pressure and saying things that if you actually examine them don't paint him in a good light I think he's he's just saying something which uh, underlines the problems at the club if he thinks that that coaching staff with you know one of the things here is that Solskjaer doesn't coach the team on a daily basis he delegates that to primarily Kieran McKenna who was a academy academy coach before um, he was promoted after Rui Faria uh, resigned as as Josie Mourinho's assistant in 2018 and Michael Carrick who is Again, someone who was brought in by Mourinho, a very good football mind, but very young and, and, and inexperienced in terms of uh, his career in the game. So those two are, are primarily doing the sessions. Solskjaer himself says he's, there are better coaches than him. That's why he delegates to them. Um, so I, I think he's just mistakenly um, talking about them and saying that they are fantastic and and the argument here that, that they're good people, they have one tension, intention in mind, that is to improve the team. And there was some brief f- from the Manchester United coaching staff about how hard they're working, um, that uh, they, they're, they're doing everything possible to improve results. They're doing it to the expense of their, of their, their family. Uh, I've no doubt that these guys are working as hard as possible to, to solve the problem, but sometimes sheer effort isn't sufficient when you're talking about the most competitive league in in world football, if you don't have the basics, if you're not as accomplished as your opponents, then just working harder because your opponents are working very hard too, isn't going to make the difference. Um, Intention isn't enough. It has to be results. So if Solskjaer's not doing the coaching, or at least the kind of, very, very detailed parts of the coaching. What, what is his, what's the point of him? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Look, we know why he was appointed. 
Um, we, we know he... They're not appointed. What is the point of him? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's the same reasons he was appointed. It was a change. It was a familiar Manchester United figure. It's a, it's a man who, as um, Gary Neville said, uh, well, why, while explaining why he would not call for um, Solskjaer to be dismissed and, and why um, he never criticises Solskjaer by name when he talks about Manchester United games. He said he's a legend um, and a very popular figure was a Manchester United support and Manchester United have quite effectively built a story around Solskjaer, the whole cultural reboot, the idea that they needed time to go back to the Manchester United way to go back to Manchester United DNA and how many times have we heard Solskjaer and others at Manchester United trotting out that phrase that they needed someone who knew the club to make that change and give him enough time, give him multiple transfer windows and eventually they will be back where Manchester United are expected to be. They took the pressure off themselves by hiring Solskjaer and because partly because of people like Gary Neville and other prominent ex-Manchester United players who were his teammates in the media who refused to criticise Solskjaer, whatever he does as manager, he has had more time than any other, uh, I think, non-former uh, Manchester United player, non-former Manchester United legend, in inverted commas, would have in a similar situation. Um Look, I, I was I was thinking about this the other day after after Neville's argument, and one of Neville's arguments is that Manchester United tried to appoint world class coaches and Louis Van Gaal and Jose Mourinho, and it failed. Therefore, they should stick with someone who's not a world class manager. I mean, it's, that is a wrong headed argument in itself. Just because uh, two appointments did not go as you would like, you're going to pick someone who is not of the same level. Because let's roll the dice and see if that works instead. That seems to be the argument there. That didn't happen when Ferguson came in. When they hired Ferguson, they were a different club. They didn't have the the kind of financial advantage in in global terms that they do now. But they went for someone who was an extremely high performer, proven track record in Scottish and European football in a very competitive Scottish league at the time. Imagine if Sir Alex Ferguson actually had the kind of status and power at Manchester United now that he would like to have. Imagine if he was a director with executive power, something which he is not. Do you really think that if, if Ferguson was the senior executive at Manchester United, he would tolerate the kind of substandard coaching and substandard performances and substandard results that he's getting from Solskjaer just because Solskjaer was one of his players, because he was a, a legend and a mate, as uh, as Neville likes to put it. Well, as a, ma- as a manager who postponed his retirement, uh, well, his second attempt to retire, it should be said, <clears throat> because Manchester City had won their first Premier League title on his watch and had admitted that he went home to his wife, Cathy, that evening and said, uh, I'm sorry, dear, but I'm, I'm, I'm not retiring because I can't go out of the game knowing that my last season was the one in which Manchester City won the title. Um, I think the winning mentality that Ferguson has is basically what runs through, through his blood. 
And um, Solskjaer seems to be quite content with saying, we're making progress, uh, we've improved, we're doing well, we'll get there in the end. That's not the mentality that Ferguson has. So this being the uh, first pod of the week, we're going to uh, conclude with our hero and villain section. And I'm very pleased to say that Mr. Duncan Castles is going to have a very interesting hero because he's not a man who often praises referees. Yeah, exactly that. I I do tend to be quite critical about refereeing and the organisation of refereeing, particularly in English football. Um, I think we have to credit a really good example of of refereeing that we saw at the weekend from Craig Pawson, um, who elected to be patient when he saw Aaron Wan-Bissaka basically cut Timothy Castagna in half on the on the touchline um, uh, during that Leicester City game, played advantage um, from which Leicester City scored a, a crucial uh, goal to go back in the lead and a, and a very high quality goal from Jamie Vardy and then went and, and booked Wan-Bissaka afterwards. It was a perfect implementation of, uh, of the advantage rules, which had a a fundamental effect on the outcome of that game, I think, and and maybe a fundamental effect on on what happens with the, the man we've just been talking about, Solskjaer. Well, you'd be glad to know, Duncan, I'm going to even that one up by having a referee as a villain. <laughs> Peter Banks, uh, who's refereeing Norwich City versus Brighton and Hove Albion uh, failed to give what was a clearly a penalty when Tim Krull made contact with Neil Mopé um, in the box. Uh, and even VAR uh, let down uh, themselves and Brighton by not awarding the penalty as well. Contact was obvious. Mopey was in a goal-scoring position uh, and uh, Banks didn't give the penalty, was not asked to review it personally. Um, VAR upheld his decision and it just seemed to me to be absolutely ridiculous that uh, they could um, come to that conclusion between all of them. Um, It's supposed to be something which uh, doesn't happen anymore, but clearly does, so... There we go. One referee's a hero, one referee's a villain. That's the nature of the job. Uh, that has been Transforming the Podcast, where we have brought you the news before it becomes news. If you want to engage with us, and you know we love that, uh, please do so on our social media platforms, mm-hmm. at Transfer Podcast on Instagram, on Facebook and Twitter. Duncan is at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I'm at GarboSJ. You can search and find us on YouTube as well. We'll be back later in the week with the second pod. And until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 